Now we're coming to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we are going to see the humiliation of Christ that he was created or became a man, and he became lower than the angels. He was created a man in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he took upon himself our humanity. Now, therefore, Christ is the revealer of God, and he is the representative of man. And you're going to find out two things about him in this book. He reveals God to man down here, and he represents man before God. I have a representative up there. I have someone to represent me. I don't know about you, but I get the feeling that up in my state capital and in my nation in Washington, that those who are called to represent me are not representing me, that they are all out for themselves today and their own little pet program, and the public can, well, they can just let the public do as they please. They're going to put through their program, and the only time they're interested in me is when I vote. And then I become a darling of the politicians. I am the intelligent public that can't go wrong, provided I vote for them. May I say to you, it's wonderful that we have a representative before God who represents us there. And that's wonderful to know that, that he's there today for you and for me. And it's a good thing we've got somebody there for us because we have an accuser of the brethren up there that has access to God. And he could tell some pretty bad things about me. I'm thankful I've got a representative there. What a picture that we have here in these first two chapters. First, the exaltation of Christ, higher than the angels, because he is God. And now in chapter 2, he became lower than the angels. He came down, and we have here the humanity of Christ. We have the two, the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. Now at this particular juncture, it's so important that he puts in here the first of six danger signals in the epistle to the Hebrews. This is the first one that we have. And here it is in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. And here there is the peril of drifting. The second danger signal will be in chapter 3, verses 7 through chapter 4, verse 2, the peril of doubting. And then in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, the third danger signal, the peril of being dull of hearing, of being student in God's school that has to wear a dunce cap. And a lot of us have to do that. And then you have the fourth danger signal, the peril of departing, and that's chapter 6, verses 1 through 20. And then there is a fifth danger signal, and that's the peril of despising, and that's in chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. Now, we come to the last danger signal. It's in chapter 12, Verses 15 through 29, the peril of denying. Now, these danger signals are warnings to the people of Israel that they fail not to enter 
into the full blessings which God has provided through Christ. God warned the nation at Kadesh Barnea that if they failed to enter into the land of Canaan, why, they would not receive the blessings. In fact, that generation, all they got was a wilderness experience, and they never knew what it was to live in the blessings of the land. Now, there are a lot of Christians today. In fact, there are two places that a believer can live. You can live in the desert and have a wilderness experience as a Christian, or you can enter into the blessings And you enter into those blessings by crossing the Jordan River, spiritually, of course. And I crossed it, and it wasn't pleasant at all, because you've got to come out of Jordan into Israel, and the bus I was on stopped five times by the time we got to the Allenby Bridge. And by that time, I was so disgusted, I didn't know whether I even wanted to cross the Jordan River. And I thought as we drove across it, and I looked at that little old muddy stream, thank God I crossed the spiritual Jordan in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection, buried with him in baptism, raised with him in newness of life. And that's the way Joshua got the children of Israel across. And how wonderful that is. Now, as we come to this warning here, Will you notice it's a warning that I think is for the child of God today. A warning, there's a danger of drifting today. Now, will you notice this in verse 1, and I'm reading it. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Now, let them slip is we should drift past them. You know, you've heard the story of the man in the boat that went to sleep on Niagara River. And before long, he was down where he was caught by the rapids. And it was too late, and there's nothing he could do about it. And he went over the falls and, of course, was killed. Now, someone asks the question, what must I do to be lost? Well, we know the answer, what must I do to be saved? What is the answer to what must I do to be lost? The answer is nothing, nothing. Just keep on going along, brother. (laughs) You're drifting, and the falls are down ahead. You and I belong to a lost human family. We're not on trial. I get a little weary of hearing God has us on trial. He doesn't have us on trial. We are lost. He's saving some today that'll turn to Christ. We're already lost. You don't do anything to be lost. You are lost. What must I do to be lost? Nothing, because that's your natural condition. Now, there is a danger, therefore, of neglect. That is, just neglecting. And neglect in any area of life is tragic. I had a very wonderful secretary and she developed cancer of the hip. The doctor told her, but she kept postponing an operation. And finally, the day came when it was too late. She just drifted, that is all. She'd been warned, but she just drifted. And then when the operation was finally performed, it was too late. And when you move that to a higher realm, hearing the gospel message and doing nothing about it, that's infinitely more tragic today. A great many people that have heard the message, 
they continue to hear it and do nothing about it. A man said to me some time ago, know him, listens to this program some. He may be listening right now for that matter. He said to me, says, McGee, you know, someday I'm going to take up your offer and accept Christ. But right now he's drifting. And I don't know how far along he is, but the day will come. He'll be in the rapids. And then it'll be too late. He'll go over. The heart attack may come or be in an accident. And so today we're going to find that it's in this epistle. Now, now is the time. This is the day of salvation. I want to tell you, I'd like to get all of you into the now generation. That now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And there's a danger, a real danger drifting. And so the warning is here. Now, will you notice verse 2? For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense or reward. Now, when those angels came to Sodom, and made an announcement of judgment, my friend, it was executed. And you will find out that when an angel brings a message in the Old Testament, you can depend on it being carried out. Now, the question is, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, a great Welsh preacher years ago He began his sermon like this. Friends, I have a question to ask. I cannot answer it. You cannot answer it. Even God cannot answer it. And then he gave this text. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And I have a sermon, and the title of my sermon is a question that God cannot answer. And I do not mean to be irreverent in it, but here's a question God can't answer. He makes it clear he can't. How shall we escape? Do you know a way of escape? The only way is Christ. He said that. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And there is a way that seemeth right unto a man. There are many ways today Here in Southern California, you can hear about as many as you want. And very frankly, if you're looking for a religion, you will find it out here. And if you don't find the one that you like, the one that's your way, you can start one, and I'll guarantee you, you'll have a few followers that'll go along with you. There's a way that seemeth right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. How shall we escape? if we neglect so great a salvation. What do you do to be lost? Nothing. Just neglect. Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. And I think he has here definite reference to the day of Pentecost, when we see the exercise of those gifts. And all of that confirmed the message to whom? To the nation Israel, as you see. Because he says, at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. 
the Lord said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll rest you. And them that heard him were the apostles. Now, the apostles then gave the message after his death and resurrection. What a tremendous thing that we have in this first little parenthesis, the first danger warning, the peril of drifting today. Now, in verse 5, the writer here is showing that Christ is superior to angels. He sets forth the deity of Christ in the way in which Christ is superior to angels. He's a son. They are creatures. They are servants. And the son receives worship, never angels. He is the heir. They are not. He's the ruler. They are not. He is the creator, and they are creatures. Now he sets forth in the remainder of chapter 2, again, the superiority of Christ to angels, but now the humanity of Christ. That is something that needs to be emphasized as well as the deity of Christ. You see, he brought deity down to this earth. He took humanity back to heaven. We've emphasized that, and this chapter will again emphasize it. Now, in verse 5, and let me read there, "...for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come of which we speak." Now, to begin with, let's understand what world he's talking about. I do not know why, but a great many folk immediately, when you speak of the world to come, they think of heaven. Well, the word here for world is oikumene, and that means the inhabited earth. That means actually the people on this earth. And it's used in Matthew 24:14, where this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the habitable earth, you see. And then in Romans 10:18, yes, verily their sound went out into all the inhabited earth. Therefore, this word could not refer to heaven or actually to eternity. And it does not refer to this economy or dispensation of grace that we live in today, but it speaks of the messianic kingdom, the kingdom that's coming on the earth. And again, let me say, for the Hebrew believer who was schooled in the Old Testament, the theme song of the Old Testament is the coming kingdom over which one in David's line will reign. And that became the theme song of every one of the prophets, the messianic kingdom. Now, what he's saying here is something very important. Unto the angels, he has not put in subjection the millennial kingdom that's coming on the earth. Not only have they not ruled in the past, they've been servants and messengers. Not only are they just servants today, but in the future, they will not rule. They will continue to be servants. That is the thought that he's expressing here. Now, 
he turns to the eighth psalm and gives us actually an interpretation of that marvelous eighth psalm that has to do with creation. Who's going to run creation in the future? Will you listen to verse 6? But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Let me pause there for just a moment. Who is man, anyway? Well, man is just a small creature on one of the minor planets. That's all you can say for him. Someone put it like this, man is a rash on the epidermis of a minor planet. Well, that really is putting man in his place, but I suppose it's more or less accurate. We are very small in God's universe, but someone has said that when you go down to pick the minutest piece of creation, the parts of an atom, and then you reach out to the largest, man probably is halfway between. He looks down and he certainly looks up. But the important thing is not that man stands halfway in the physical creation. The important thing is that Jesus became a man, or rather, the Lord of glory, the second person of the Godhead, became Jesus, a man down here. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Well, the answer to that is Jesus became a man. He left heaven's glory and came down to this earth. And he didn't become an angel. That's what he's going to say here. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? What is man? Well, man in and of himself is nothing. He's not much. Physically, the elements of his body if you break them down into the chemical components and put them on the market, at one time you could only get 98 cents. But due to inflation today, man's worth about $3. That's not very valuable, and especially when you think of the dollar today. So that man is not very valuable physically and mentally. He thinks he's something, but he knows very little, to tell the truth. What really does man know about this vast universe that we're in? We've spent billions of dollars to send man to the moon to see if we can find out how it all began, because we don't believe the first chapter of Genesis, so we are exploring the moon. Well, I want to say to you, Genesis 1-1 looks lots better than any spot I've seen on the moon, and I would accept it in anything they've found there. So that man today isn't very much mentally, materially, or physically. He can't lift very much. He can't do very much. Man is quite limited. When you look at man, he's a lost sinner. He's in a terrible condition today. But what is man? That thou art mindful of him, that thou visitest him? Well, he visited us because... He wanted to communicate with us, and he wanted to save us. He saw our lost condition. Now notice verse 7. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, 
and did set him over the works of thy hands. Now, what did he do with man? Well, he made man lower than the angels even to begin with. Man took a lower place than the angels. Psalm 8 makes abundantly clear that man was made lower than the angels. Now, the one who was higher than the angels, superior to the angels, he is the Lord of glory. He's been willing now to come down below angels and become not an angel but a man. I went across the brook Jabba in the kingdom of Jordan. And somewhere along that little creek, and that's all I would call it. We would have called it that in Oklahoma when I was a boy, just a creek. But that little brook Jabba, the angel of the Lord wrestled with Jacob. Now, in the Old Testament, many of us believe that the angel of the Lord was Christ. Now, he came down and become lower than the angel because he became a man. Apparently, angels are the norm, the measuring rod here. He is the standard, the bureau of standards. Christ is above angels, but he came below angels. And he did it to reveal God. He is also the representative of man before God. He brought God to earth. He took man back to heaven. And if you and I get there, we're going to get there in Christ. And I'm sure we're going to get there because we're already in Christ, our position is already assured. This is God's original purpose with man. Will you notice what he says in verse 7? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hand. Now, man's going to do something angels never have been able to do. Angels do not rule God's universe. They are messengers that rule under God. Now, there was an angel that attempted to rebel against God. He attempted to set up his own kingdom. He attempted to become a ruler, and that was Lucifer, son of the morning. We know him today by the name of Satan or the devil. He was an angel of light. And he rebelled. God doesn't intend angels to rule, but he's created man, and man will rule someday. But today man is not capable of ruling. I think he's demonstrating that. It's tragic that in our nation today, all that we have, it looks like a bunch of clowns that are performing in a three-ring circus in Washington and in the capitals of our states. Makes you bow your head in shame. Man can't rule, but he thinks he can rule. He has taken on this viewpoint from Satan that somehow or another man can rule, and the tragedy is he's trying to rule without God. God today could bless and has in the past He's blessed this nation abundantly when man recognized God. But man can't rule, and he's demonstrated that. I have been studying English history. I've done that because 
I made a trip over there, and I wanted to look at the abbeys and the castles and the cathedrals with some degree of intelligence of the background. And I want to say to you, I didn't realize how bloody the kings of England had been. The minute a man became king, he killed all of his relatives so that nobody could take the throne away from him. If you were a brother or a cousin of a king, you were in trouble because he's apt to take you to the Tower of London as many of them lost their heads there. May I say, man's not capable of ruling this earth. But God's going by redemption today. Bring him back to the place. And that's what this eighth psalm says. He's crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the work of his hand. And man lost that dominion in the Garden of Eden, but Christ has recovered it. Now, verse 8, "...thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet." Who's Christ? Not now. We don't see it now. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that's not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. This earth has not slipped out from and under his control, but he's not ruling today. When the Lord Jesus Christ rules on this earth, and my friend, you can put it down that he is, there'll not be any need of a hospital or a jail. There'll not be any poverty. There will not be any crime. When he rules, this earth will be a millennial paradise. But he's not ruling today. And the writer here to Hebrews, quoting the eighth psalm, makes it abundantly clear that this psalm speaks of Christ, but that it's not fulfilled up to the present moment. Now, notice what he says here in verse 9. And I think here you have the very heart of this chapter. But we see Jesus. Now, you notice That's his human name. We see Jesus. You'll call his name Jesus, angels said. you call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sin. We see Jesus. He was made a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death. That was the only way. He alone could redeem man. And he only could do that by dying upon the cross for the suffering of death. This was the only way. Now he's been lifted up. God hath highly exalted him. He's crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And I'd emphasize that word, taste death. That means that he not only experienced the fact of death, but he had the experience of what death really is, the very fullest death. He drank the cup, the cup of death, that bitter cup was pressed to his lips, and he drank every bit of it, and he did that for you and me. Now, will you notice, he goes on to say here that he did that by the grace of God, that God today could be gracious to you and me and save us. 
verse 10, "...for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering." Now, this is very important for us to see. Jesus was not a man in whom God did something. The humanity of Jesus doesn't mean that he's a religious genius. It doesn't mean that he was a martyr to a cause. It doesn't mean that he was setting a good example. Christ's humiliation accomplished two things. It got glory and honor to the person of Christ and it procured man's salvation and made man's salvation possible. Christ, as we've said, took humanity to heaven, and there is a man in the glory, and there is a glory in that man that was not there before. This was something that God could not do until Jesus came and died upon the cross. And he's made perfect in the sense, complete. God cannot, and I do not mean to be irreverent, God cannot save man by just being a sob-sister and big-hearted and saying, I forgive you. God never forgives until the penalty is paid. It has to be if he's the moral ruler of the universe. So when God saved Abraham, he saved him on time, on credit. When he saved Abraham, he took the bill and he said, I'll pay this later in the fullness of time. Christ came forth, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those that had been under the law. He redeemed Moses. He redeemed David by his death on the cross. And he redeemed you. And you and I do not bring a sacrifice today, That's what the writer to the Hebrews is going to make very clear later on. You and I look back in faith to him, for this is God's only way of saving mankind. God's heavenly purpose, therefore, is bringing many sons home to glory. And he can only do it through the death of Christ. My friend, you and I have been walking in the tall corn today. This is a tremendous passage of Scripture, and this is an area that is not dealt with too much, and that's the reason we're taking our time here. This is all important for you and me today. Now, will you notice, for it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory. And that's God's present purpose. Now, God has a future purpose of putting his king on his holy hill of Zion. That's in the second psalm. And God's moving forward on that today. But right now, he's calling a people out by his name. I read a letter. The boy, I take it, he got about as far down as you can go and on dope and had served time in prison. And now the Lord Jesus has saved him. The Lord's bringing many sons home to glory. We're seeing this and hearing of it all over the world today. God's still calling the people out to his name and bringing many sons unto glory 
to make the captain of their salvation. Now, I want to say a word about this word captain. We have it again in verse 2 of chapter 12, and you find it translated prince in Acts 3.15. Actually, it means originator or leader. And Dr. Schofield's note is one who initiates and carries through. In other words, the Lord Jesus is the Alpha and Omega of everything. He's the beginning and the end. He starts it and he completes it, you see. He is the captain. He originates our salvation. And he not only originates it, but to make the captain of our salvation perfect. And that word perfect, we dwelt on it just a little before. Actually, this has to do with the idea of to carry through to a goal, to consummate. So that you have here with the word captain and the word perfect, he originates it, he consummates it. He begins it, he ends it. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. This is the thing that the writer here is saying. And how did he do it? By sitting on the throne of God? No, by coming down to this earth and taking upon himself our humanity. And what did he do when he came down here? He tasted death, we're told, back in verse 9. He tasted death for every man. And as we said last time, that just doesn't mean the fact of death that he went through, but all that death means. And therefore, when the Lord Jesus became a man, he wasn't a man in whom God did something, although he did. But he's not a religious genius, and yet he was. He's not a martyr to a cause, and yet you could say that. He's not a good example. And yet he was. No, he came down to this earth to redeem mankind. He procured man's salvation. And today, there's a man in the glory. He took humanity back to heaven. And he brought God down here to reveal God. He took humanity up there to represent us. He reveals God down here he represents man up there, and we're going to see that in his priesthood here. Now, I read verse 11. We're ready for it now. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, I love this verse we come to here. And sanctified doesn't quite mean what the average person thinks it means today, and certainly what I thought for years it meant. My idea was it made sort of a goody-goody out of you, made you a nice, sweet little boy. Well, sanctification, when it's used in connection with the Holy Spirit, has to do with the work of God in us to make us the kind of representative that he wants down on this earth. And it's the work of the Spirit of God in the heart of the redeemed. But sanctification, when it's used with the person of Christ, and that is true in the epistle to the Hebrews, it's not purification, it's consecration. It's not a condition, but a position that we have in Christ. And that is something that we need to keep before us. 
and he was the just, and he took the place of the unjust that he might bring us to God. And he's brought us now into the family of God. And in the family of God, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, I don't dare call him brother. I wouldn't dare say that concerning him. But may I say that he has brought us into the family of God. And he's the firstborn among many brethren. He's the head of the family. And he calls us brethren because we all become sons of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, this makes it very clear that this false doctrine, not a doctrine, it's heresy of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man, is probably the most damnable doctrine that there is abroad today, because it's just simply not true. As we said last time, I sure wouldn't want to have been a brother of a king of England in the old days. You'd have made a trip to the tower, one-way trip, and they would have had a necktie party for you. They'd have put your head over the chopping block and with one whack ended it all. They were a bloody lot, by the way. We, like the many of us, boast of our English background. I tell you, when you begin to look at it, you wonder whether you wouldn't like to say that you came from some island way out in the South Pacific somewhere and not with an English background. May I say to you, mankind hasn't very much to boast of today. Now, we find as we read on here, and he says, he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Now, this verse is a quotation from Psalm 22. And that's the great psalm of the cross. And verse 22 denotes the change in this psalm. In the first part of it, you have the humiliation of Christ. And you have actually the seven last words of the cross there. Many of you have my book on the X-ray of the cross, and that's on Psalm 22, and we deal with those seven sayings. They're all right here. But beginning with verse 22, you have the exaltation of Christ. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. And I'm of the opinion that we could restrict this right here to his Hebrew brethren, because this is written to the Hebrews. I was talking to a Jewish guide that we had, Miss McGee and I were with him for one day, and before he left us, I had a little talk with him about Jesus. I asked him the question. I said, you know, Jesus was in this land here. He enjoyed pointing out several places. I remember he said, Here is Bethany. And you remember Jesus was here, and this is the home. that I said to him, I said, Jesus was a Jew. (laughs) You remember the woman at the well, she was a Samaritan. She said to him, how is it that thou being a Jew? That's what she thought he was. And I think she was accurate because Jesus didn't deny it, you see. And I told him, I said, you ought to be telling me about Jesus and not me telling you about Jesus. I said, you told me that he went to Bethany, and I already 
knew about that, but had never seen the place before. That is, I hadn't been up into that particular area. I'd been by there several times. But you pointed that out. Now, I said, you ought to know him for the reason that he came to this earth. But I have to report, sadly, that he wasn't interested at all in that aspect of his coming. He was just interested in being a guide and for a price, taking folk around and showing them the different places. Now, will you notice here that he says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, will I sing praise unto thee. And the word church is congregation here, and in that sense, I think more than the technical meaning that we attribute to church. Now, verse 13, and again, now he's going to give another quotation here, and will you notice it? And again, and he's quoting now from Isaiah, the eighth chapter, verses 17 and 18, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children whom God hath given me. Now, this reveals how the Holy Spirit interprets Scripture. There are those today that try to give an interpretation of, for instance, the prophets that would eliminate any reference to Jesus Christ at all. Now, here is one reference that when I read it in Isaiah, I actually see that he's talking about the sons of Isaiah. That's the way I understand it. But now the Spirit of God interprets this in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. So that when today anyone attempts to eliminate the Lord Jesus from the prophets, they are contradicting the interpretation that the Holy Spirit gives. And you will remember that when the Lord came back from the dead, that he said in John 20, 17, "'Go to my brethren and say unto them, "'I send unto my Father your Father and my God and your God.'" In other words, he is saying to my brethren, and it was his apostles at that particular time, and they were, of course, all Jewish. I emphasize that because I think it's rather important at this juncture And if we keep before us the ones to whom this epistle was written, it will enable us to give an interpretation that I trust might lead to an application to your heart and to my heart today. Now, will you notice verse 14? He says, "...for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same." that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. We come now to a statement that emphasizes his incarnation. He partook of flesh and blood. He came in a way they weren't really looking for him to come. They should have been. The prophets had made it clear the way he would come the first time. But as George MacDonough put it, they were looking for a king to lift them high. He came a little baby thing that made a woman cry. He took 
a part of flesh and blood. And he came into this world by human birth, just like you and I came into this world. And not only through birth, his birth didn't save anyone, you see. It was through death he might destroy him. And it was only through death that he could save. His death is what saves us, not his birth nor his life saves us. It's his death that saves us. And he brought salvation and deliverance from death. That is, spiritual and eternal death. Now, if you'll notice here what he says, and I'm moving rather slowly because this is so important here. Verse 15, I'm reading that now. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, he came down to this earth, took upon himself our humanity, became lower than an angel, because he says now in verse 16, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Now, when he came down in the likeness of man, it was a real likeness to man. And he came right down where the rubber meets the road today. He could have been born in the palace of a Caesar. He wasn't born there. He was born in real poverty. He was born in a stable back of an inn. Why? So that he could come down and be actually in the likeness of man, that he might know something of the effect of sin on humanity. And where do you see it today? Well, you see it in poverty. You see it in temptation today. And you see it in violent and unmerited death today. That's where you see sin manifested. I think it's tragic in this hour. Innocent people here in Pasadena some time ago, a dear, talented Christian woman, an outstanding artist, up in her 80s now, followed home by some teenager and cruelly and brutally murdered there. How terrible it was. And nothing was done about it, my friend. Nothing has been done about it. Thank God he's going to make things right someday. There's got to be an accounting somewhere today. And he's the one that's going to do that. So he came down and he knew what real poverty was during World War One. I went through El Paso on the train, and before we got in, the Pullman conductor came in and said, don't any of you get off here, because there are people in that station that have been there a week, and they can't get out, and they're desperate, and they'll come in if you get out and sit in your seat, and they won't leave. And so you stay right there, and so we stayed right there. And so when the train started up, I went out to the vestibule, And the conductor was there, and I asked him about it. He went into the station. I didn't. He said, why, there are people in there that have been in there for a week. They're camping. They want to get out. It was during the war. You remember 
a young couple would come there and he'd be shipped out overnight and she'd be left stranded. She couldn't get back to her people and just wait there in the station. He said to me, he says, you know that there was a little boy that was born there the other night, right in that station. <laughs> Imagine being born there. That little fella's a great big fella. Now, and I sure hope somebody's told him about Jesus. He got caught like that, too, you remember? They, old Caesar made a tax bill that everybody had to go and enroll to be taxed. And his mother, Mary, had to go to Bethlehem, and there wasn't any room in the inn. And he's born in a stable. He sure could sympathize that fellow today born in a Union station, wouldn't he? The Lord Jesus came down, and he's able to sympathize with you and me today. I don't care who you are, where you are. He knows you, and he understands you, not just because he's God, but because he became a man. And he knows exactly what you and I are going through today. Now, even today, there's a great deal of poverty in that land, especially among the Arabs. My heart goes out to the refugees there today. We can't condone the rash acts that they have committed and murder and that sort of thing. But did you know that they've been living since 1948? They've been living in these refugee camps, and it's absolutely horrible the way they've had to live there. And even their own brethren, the other Arabs, have not permitted them to get integrated among the people. They've been confined to those camps. And all that our nation's ever done is poured in dollars. You know, we've had the insane notion now for years that the American dollar is a god and that somehow or another that that God can solve every problem if you just got enough of them. And my friends, you're going to have to have a whole lot of them these days because I'm not sure what God is the one that devalued the dollar. We thought too much of it. And I found out that in traveling in countries in Europe and in Asia and in Africa that the American dollar is not as big and as important as it once was. This God's been knocked off his pedestal, by the way. And those dollars that we sent over there never helped these people. It's too bad that we have had to send guns and dollars. And guns and dollars have not solved any problems anywhere. But that which we've begun to despise as a nation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it has brought blessing wherever it's gone, by the way. And it's too bad that we didn't get over there first. You remember it was Perry when he opened up Japan, said, send a million Bibles over here, and if you don't, you're going to have to send a million men to fight. Well, we didn't send the Bibles, but we sure did send the men. And General Douglas MacArthur said the same thing. And we really fought a long war in Vietnam, didn't we? Too bad we don't send Bibles and missionaries and get the Word of God out today. We think we're practical. We're very pragmatic. And our dollars and our know-how and our science, it hasn't solved problems anywhere, friends. It's given people running water and given them a bathtub and a commode on the inside the house. But that doesn't solve problems, you see. Today, we need to get the Word of God out. How important that is. Oh, how important that is. 
Now, let me come back to this. You say you digress. I hope that wasn't a digression. I hope that was very important. Now, listen to him in verse 17. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. And he came in poverty. The poverty of the family Jesus came in is almost unspeakable, my friend. And he came down here among a subject people. They were under the heel of Rome. He wasn't born in a palace in Rome. He was born in a stable down in Bethlehem. He was in all points made like unto his brethren. He became one of them. You'd seen that little boy playing up yonder in Bethlehem and with a little ragged garment on. You'd never known who he was. These artists that paint him and he stands out as if he's some bright cameo. He was probably a dirty-faced little boy that played up there. He's made like unto his brethren, my friend. In emphasizing the deity of Christ, we are in danger of underestimating the humanity of Jesus. My friend, he was a real human being brought up there. And I want to say to you, I'm happy that I was not born in Bethlehem. I'm delighted I was not raised in Nazareth. I want to tell you, even today, they don't have too much of a chance there. And think what it was in Jesus' day. Not much of a chance. But he became a real human being, friends. He's the root out of a dry ground. If you went out here in Arizona and saw this iceberg lettuce ahead of it growing, you'd think that is a miracle. And it would be. And it's sure a miracle to think that out of that background he came. He was a real human being And you've never had a thought. You've never suffered anything. He doesn't already know all about. And for that reason, he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make not reconciliation, but propitiation for the sins of the people. He made a mercy seat for you and me to come to today. And that's what we need is mercy. And God has a great deal of it because Jesus made a mercy seat And you can go there and get all the mercy you need. And I don't know about you, but I sure need a whole lot of it. And after I've used up a great deal of it, there's still plenty of it for you today. He made a mercy seat for the sins of the people. And that's the place and the only place today you can get mercy. Now, verse 18. For in that he himself hath suffered being Tempted, and the word should be tested. He was tested, not just for 40 days. That was the testing, of course, in a particular way. But his entire life was a testing, my friend. Being tested, he's able to succor them or help them that are tested. Now, I want you to follow me very carefully, because right here is where some of you are going to disagree with me. And that'll be all right. If you want to be wrong, that's your business. But will you listen to me? I'm going to be rather dogmatic here. The question is asked in the testing that was given to Jesus, could he have succumbed to it? Could he have fallen? And the answer is no. Now, there's something very important for us to note here. 
And will you follow me now very carefully? We speak of being tempted to do a wrong when what actually you and I mean is that we had the opportunity to do wrong and we wanted to do it. Now, the opportunity was the testing, but the desire to do wrong was sin. And a sinful desire is itself sin. Therefore, he never had that sinful desire. He was not a sinner, but he sure had the opportunity. And that's where Satan began with him at that point. He said to him, why don't you make these rocks here into bread? There are a lot of hungry people in the world. Why don't you turn the rocks? And if you've ever been to that land, friends, there are a whole lot of rocks there. It almost makes you smile and, in fact, laugh when you think of how ridiculous it was for that false rumor to get around that they were shipping Indiana marble over there to build a temple. Now, if you've been to that land, you find out they just don't need any more rocks. They got plenty of them. In fact, they would appreciate it if Indiana would order some rocks from them because they could spare them and still have plenty to build a temple. So that was the temptation. He could have made stones into bread, but he didn't. That was the test. His test was greater than mine because I want you to know this. If I could make stones into bread, I'd be in the bakery business. I'd make up a whole lot of bread. He could have, but he didn't. He had the opportunity, and that's the test that came. But he didn't yield to it. But he never desired to yield to the test. And he could not so desire for the very fact that he was God. And again, I ask the question, could Jesus have sinned? And the answer is no, he could not. Now, somebody's going to come back, well, then what was the purpose of the testing? And therefore, he could not be tempted. Well, may I say to you, if you want to put it like that, then should pure gold be tested? Up here in the gold mining country of California, they had an assayist at every one of those mines. You know why? They tested the gold. And if you had stopped the man that was testing it and said, well, you don't think that's pure gold? He says, of course it's pure gold. But we test it to prove that it's pure gold. And therefore, he was tested. I think I can give you a better illustration than that. When I was a boy, I lived in West Texas on the East Fork of the Brazos River. Now, in the summertime, there wasn't enough water in that river to rust a shingle nail. But in the wintertime, you could have floated a battleship down there. And so we had a flood one winter, and the Santa Fe went through our little town there. And by the way, the little town's disappeared now. And it went across the Brazos. And when we had a flood, it washed out the railroad bridge. It was a wooden bridge. And so they came in and put a steel bridge in. And then they brought two engines and put them on top of that bridge. And they tied down the whistles. Well, in our little town, we, you know, never heard two whistles at one time. So we all rushed down to the bridge. In fact, all 27 of us, we went down and one of the extroverts in our little town asked the engineer, I says, what are you doing? He said, we're testing the bridge. And he says, do you think it'll fall down? And with a sneer, why? Well, he said, of course it won't fall down. 
Well, then why are you putting angels? We're putting the engines on there to prove that it won't fall down. Jesus was tested to prove that he was who he claimed to be. That's very important, you see. Actually, if Jesus of Nazareth had sinned, that would not have proved that God in the flesh could sin. It wouldn't have proved that. It would have proved that Jesus of Nazareth was not God in the flesh. The testing proved he's God in the flesh. He cannot sin. I hope that I made that point, though you may not agree with it. But that just happens to be the facts as they're presented in the Word of God. And he was tested, we're told here, in all points. Now will you notice, for in that he himself hath suffered, being tested, he's able to help them that are tested. Now I only got one verse in the day, but this verse is very important because that's the subject of this epistle when we get now to the fifth chapter. From then on, we're going to be talking about the priesthood, the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's able to help those that are tested. And if there's one thing that we hope we can bring out in this epistle, and that is to make you and me very conscious that you and I have a high priest. He's alive right this moment. He's at God's right hand. And best of all, he's available. He's there. When I wake up in the dark watches of the night and toss and turn, as I sometimes do with some burden on my heart. I can look up, and my great high priest, he's up there. He knows me, and he understands, and I can take my burden to him. May I say to you that no matter what comes, when that dark moment comes, you and I go down through the valley of the shadow of death, we got a great high priest up yonder, and he's able to help those that are tested. He's able to help us today. I'm afraid that we're not using him as much as we should. We forget about him, and we try to fight the battle alone. He's available. He wants you to come to him.